Yeah, I mean, this 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 will forever look. This isn't just going to go down in sports annals. What, what Cap did. This is going down in American history books. You know, if 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 uh, you know we're ever able to write history books, you know, by the non-victors. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are speaking to NFL Network reporter Steve Weish, who also currently appears in the weekday morning show NFL AM. Steve Weish is a veteran reporter, and he's also, for the purposes of this conversation, the person who broke the story in 2016 that Colin Kaepernick was not standing for the national anthem. That was him in August 2016 who saw it and reported on it when everybody else was just looking the other way and not realizing the import of what they were seeing. So we're going to talk to Steve Weish about that moment five years ago and what he thinks has changed and what he thinks has stayed the same in those last five years. Also, I've got some choice words about the Paralympics that I co-wrote with Jules Boykoff. I got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. We got the same person for both awards and more. But first, let's talk to Steve Weish. You broke the story on Colin Kaepernick not standing for the anthem. So my two-part question is, can you walk us through the mechanics of what happened that day? And the second part of that question is, are you sick and tired of having to answer this question? Okay. So to the first part, the mechanics of what happened that day is the only reason I was at that game was because it was the first game Colin Kaepernick had been medically cleared to play in the preseason. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he had, I think, wrist surgery, knee surgery, and shoulder surgery. And Chip Kelly was supposed to be the coach that was going to run a system that was going to allow Colin Kaepernick to get back on track. So I was there, no camera, no TV work, really more an observational role to write something after the fact. Pre-game, I mean, shortly before the anthem, my colleague Mike Garofolo gives me a call and says, hey, Steve, I was just talking with an executive for the 49ers who said that they believe that Colin Kaepernick has not stood for the national anthem during their first one, if not both preseason games, but they couldn't tell because he wasn't in uniform. So they weren't sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm just calling to alert you to keep an eye out. And so... You know, press boxes are like 5 million feet in the air, so it's very hard to see everything that's happening on the sideline. But you could clearly see after it had been alerted that Cap was not standing with his teammates on the sideline. And then you come to notice at the end of the National Anthem, he gets up off the bench. So, okay, he didn't stand. That immediately hits a trigger. Okay. I've, I've been watching Cap's social media because I've known Cap since the Senior Bowl. We've always had a great relationship from the time he was Alice Mix backup to the time he became the superstar kissing the bicep. So, you know, we, we'd seen each other at events, everything else. We were always great. And so I'm thinking maybe this is related to the stuff we've seen on social media where he clearly was finding his voice and speaking out against Philando Castile and so many other murders we've seen of unarmed black men by police officers. 
So I've got three hours to watch a game <laughs> and get my thoughts together. And so, you know, I alert the Niners. Cap didn't stand. The Niners PR department. Cap didn't stand for the national anthem. May mean nothing. It may be something. So if someone asks him about it during the regular postgame news conference, fine. You know, I'll join in. But if not, I need to speak to Cap separately. So after the game, nobody asked Cap about the question. So Cap comes out because of our relationship. He had no problem isolating with me. We're just standing out of the auditorium. I mean, everybody's filing out all the press. and everything. So they're seeing me talk to Cap. And that's when we had the conversation where I asked mm. him, okay, I noticed you didn't stand for the national anthem. And he, he you know, he was water coming out of a fire hose. He seemed like yeah. he, was, he was ready to say his piece. And he said his piece. And, um, you know, wrote, wrote the story. <clears throat> you know, we were on the record for about 10 minutes. And then for about five minutes, we just chatted because I told him, look, I'm, I'm twice Cap's age, right? I, I, at the time, I kids darn your Cap's age. I said, look, this is going to be a big story. And he's like, no, I get it. And I was like, no, this is going to be a big story. But even mm. I did not know it was going to be as big as it was. Um, even though I knew this was going to ruffle feathers based on my days covering the NBA and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf mm-hmm. doing something similar back when he's playing with the Denver Nuggets. And, um, so, I mean, that, that's that in terms of, am am I tired of being asked about it? No, this was a historic moment. This was American history. Mm -hmm. As much as people don't want to recognize that, or some people, I should say, don't want to recognize that with everything we saw with George Floyd and everything we've seen since there's always a reflection back on Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. You cannot have, there is, there are very few social stands today, or I'll say since then, since 2016, that somehow are not threaded back mm-hmm. towards what Colin Kaepernick did. So no, I, I, I'm never, I'm never tired of it. Not because of me, I was just doing my job, but because at the time you had a, a 27, 28 year old guy <laughs> risking it all probably mm-hmm. saying some things that, that hundreds of other athletes wanted to say, but were too scared to do, mm-hmm. especially when it came to NFL players, because they don't have guaranteed contracts. We saw, we look, Cap did what he did. We saw WNBA and NBA players doing this before with some of their stands with Trayvon Martin and mm-hmm. things like that, but they've got guaranteed contracts. They're going to get mm-hmm. paid regardless. <laughs> NFL players don't. And don't you think part of the reason it exploded also is like NFL closest thing we have in this country to a uh, monoculture and then the quarterback, the visible position on an NFL team. I mean, didn't the, the platform of the NFL also send this into the stratosphere? 100%. I'm not the NFL is King. Like I said, I've covered the NBA. I've covered the NFL and as popular as the NBA was when I covered it, look, this is when Jordan was with the bulls. And then when, came you know this is when it was out of tights Shaq Kobe it is nothing it pales in comparison to the overall fan reaction fandom of the NFL so as you said it's the NFL and it's the position had this been an outside linebacker like even a good outside linebacker or a great offensive lineman it is not going to have the impact of one of 32 players Right. Mm-hmm. That's the one position on the field 
other than maybe field goal kicker or something like that, where there's only one. Yeah, and, and so that that's why that that was that I think that added, you know, to to I guess the reaction. I was just going to say, it's so funny if uh, to pull a name out of, out of thin air, if Jeff Blake knocked on my door right now, who is a quarterback I loved watching like 20 years ago, I would sure. be like, oh, my God, it's Jeff Blake. But if Quentin Nelson, who's only one of the best players in the NFL, but not a quarterback, knocked on my door, I would be like, who's this huge guy in my door? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's, there's something look, about that position. Well, I mean, look, it's it's the position where not to sound corny or stereotypical, but from high school, it's usually one of the most popular kids in school, one of the best athletes in school, usually a multi-sport, you know, star, typically one of the best looking guys, you know, um, and it's, it's just, and, and it carries all the way through college and it carries all the way through every year. What are the top, four picks of the NFL draft quarterbacks. Mm. So, I mean, that just goes to show the importance of the position as well. Plus it's not like cap was a scrub. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he almost got the 49ers to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing I, I wanted to ask you as a football guy, because you, you certainly know the game you, you covered Kaepernick at the senior bowl. You saw him when he was this wonder kind with this <laughs> cannon arm and incredible gallop down the field. He'd then gone through several surgeries, as you mentioned, the kind of – I've always maintained that I thought Cap was set up for a, a career renaissance at that point. And then he had a very good year that year, even amidst all the attention. But what, what was your take on who Kaepernick could be as a player at that point in 96? I mean 2016. 2016. Well, look, he was an excellent player. Look, I, I covered Michael Vick in Atlanta. Right, and Vic was ahead of his time. Right, had Michael Vick played in today's game, as huge as he was then, he would be unbelievably huge now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Cap, because of his height, like Michael Vick was six feet tall, Cap is what, six four, six five. Mm-hmm. And so I think because of his height and his gifts, um, if he had the proper, you know, like when he had with Greg Roman, right, and Jim Harbaugh, coaches that fit his style. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jim Tom Sula takes over and that was a disaster. And then Jim Kelly takes over and that was a disaster. These things, these things affect the players. It wasn't just mm-hmm. cap. That went from a Super Bowl team to one of the worst teams in the NFL quickly. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, cap just fell off. That, that team fell off. The organization mm-hmm. fell off. So in terms of the type of player he was, he's not your prototype. Right. But nowadays, who is? Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw Steve Wilkes get fired from the Arizona Cardinals because he wanted to hire Cliff Kingsbury because he's a guy who could coach Kyler Murray. Mm-hmm. Right. So even if Cap is as well as he played for that stretch, I think in today's game, he would be more appreciated than he was then because more coaches now are adapting the athletic quarterback, even a guy like Josh Allen. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, again, he, he, he was a very good quarterback. He wasn't your standard. You know, he wasn't Patrick Mahomes, but who mm-hmm. is? Mm-hmm. And so this is where, you know, a lot of times the players get knocked for not living up to expectations. 
But what about all these supposed QB whisperers and Svengali's who don't quite live up to billing? Mm. Some of that's on them as well. Yeah. Yes. Somewhere out there, I'm hearing June Jones cry just a little bit. Um, You know, Yahoo Sports just called Kaepernick the most important athlete of the 21st century. What's your response when you hear something like that? Well, I mean, it's hard to knock it when you, you know, because look, Muhammad Ali is probably, I'd probably say the most transformative athlete of, of my lifetime, maybe in the past 100 years. I'm sure some people would say Jackie Robinson or Jesse Owens or, you know, someone like that. Um, Jackie Joyner Kersey, but you know, they, they didn't have social media, right? They didn't have the platform to get behind a mic and just go with 12 million news outlets ready to just rocket this information. And so I think it wasn't just the message that Cap sent. It wasn't just the stance he took. It was the fact that we had video evidence to back up his message, Mm -hmm. right? When Muhammad Ali, when Muhammad Ali was talking about um, racism and stuff like that, they were probably using a lot of the stock footage Mm -hmm. of the lunch counter protest and things like this, right? And it still wasn't sure. There was no CNN. There was no Mm -hmm. ESPN. There was no BET. Right, you had you had three major news networks. You had a three three letters. That was mm-hmm. it. Okay, and newspapers. And look, Muhammad Ali was hated, hated. Mm-hmm. He was not appreciated until he was well finished fighting. Mm-hmm. Right. See, with Cap, his words came. You know, as as you know, when I mentioned you, you've got a video of. Philando Castile getting shot from his wife and daughter, Eric Garner getting choked out on a corner, you know, in New York. So that's why I think his importance and relevance resonates stronger than than maybe some of those other just transformative, brave and and, and bold sports figures we've seen before. You know, there are these uh let's call them bruises on the history of sports, like the color line in Major League Baseball or Muhammad Ali having his title stripped and things like that. Do you think Kaepernick not being able to find work, do you think this is going to stand the test of time as a kind of mark of shame against the National Football League? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There's there's so many... There's so many Mia culpas in sports that are, you know, like this, like, you know, major colleges not recruiting black athletes, you know, because they, they weren't admitted or, 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 you know, Latino athletes because, you know, they, they, they couldn't get in or not having women's sports. And, and so, 
the NFL was probably much quicker to pull the media culpa, you know, even as, you know, during the pandemic, Roger Goodell coming out and saying, Hey, the NFL wouldn't be what it is without black players, you know, instead of, Mm -hmm. you know, standing firm on the lines of segregation for 50 years, Mm -hmm. you know, until all of a sudden Bear Bryant got run over by Sam Bam Cunningham of USC. Mm -hmm. We need, we need some black players like him. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean this 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 will forever. Look, this isn't just going to go down in sports annals. What, what Cap did. This is going down in American history books. You know, if 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 uh, you know we're ever able to write history books, you know, by the non-victors. Mm-hmm. You know, you've been so generous with your time. I really do appreciate it, Steve. Um, but before you go, I gotta ask you. Gotta gotta ask you. Um, I've been in DC a long time and people who listen to this podcast know that I've just adopted this place as my home over the last 20 years. What you went to Howard university. First of all, yep. what does Howard mean to you? And what was your experience like as a Howard student? Howard means everything to me and look, it made me a man. And there, there's, there's, there's a hundreds of thousands of people who've gone through that university in a lot of HBCUs. Uh, men and women who will tell you this is where they grew up. Now, when I went to Howard, I had the, I had the experience of attending a predominantly white institution, right? I, where I went to high school in St. Louis, I was probably one of no joke, you know, 15 black kids in my entire high school. Right. And then I went to university of Missouri, um, which at the time out of, 25,000 students, there were probably fewer than a thousand students of color. And I'm not just talking about black people. I'm talking Indian. I'm talking Asian. I'm talking Latino. And so when I transferred to Howard, I just, and that was just a whim. I was going to transfer, you know, the football stuff wasn't going well. The coaches brought me and got fired. And Willie Jeffries was a head coach at Howard. And and he had sent me some information when he was at Wichita state um, when I was in high school. And and so I got to Howard wondering, hey, am I going to be black enough? Mm. But at the same time, I was like, I need this, right? I, I need – this is something I've never experienced in my life. And so um, I was there in the, in the 80s when D.C. was the murder capital of the U.S. Mm-hmm. It was hot. This is when crack was exploding. I got there the summer of Len Bias. Mm. Um, there at University of Maryland. So it was, D.C. was like the epicenter of like mm-hmm. – <laughs> violent crime. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm learning how to navigate through an urban city that's exploding with violent crime and crack while also going to this immaculate campus with these beautiful people and having teachers teach me courses where I'm learning that there were studies done against people of color to prove their inferior, you know, inferiority by white doctors, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, their brains are smaller. I'm reading books by Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston and all of these black authors I've never read before, most of whom I have never heard before. I'm being taught about the slave trade in ways I've never heard before. 
and, 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 and it really resonates. Like what I've been taught doesn't jive with this. And so it opened up my thinking, wanted me to educate myself more. So I lived in libraries. Yes, we did have to read books back then and not, you know, Twitter. And, and so um, it just, it, it made me a man. My journalism professors um, were just incredible. They took care of me. You know, I was the first sports editor of what we call the community news and the editor in chief. They saw how hard I worked. We had an incredible group of young journalists and, you know, Stan Verrett, who's at ESPN, mm. Gus Johnson, who's at Fox, Michelle Miller, who's at CBS News, Frederica Whitfield, who was at CNN. We were all in a cluster, right? These are just the broadcast people. I was a longtime writer, but there was a ton of great writers who, I mean, we were all there. So they were really blessed with this group of folks who pushed each other and challenged each other and went to conferences. So when I came out, I was ready. You know, all these people who say, oh, black colleges don't prepare you for the real world. That's just, that's BS. <laughs> I was, I was well prepared, um, you know, and also in part because I was able to cover high school sports for the Washington Post. So I also got that big newsroom experience working with Michael Wilbon and, and Tony Kornheiser and just, you know, Thomas Boswell and all, all of these great people, you know, and, and so it was just being in DC at the time, helped me just as much as being at Howard. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, hey, when, when, when you come back to D.C. for work, which I'm, I'm sure you do often, do you, do you ever go back to campus, walk around, see what's going on these days? What's crazy is I was back on campus like two or three years ago for an event we did that the NFL Network did for um, Doug Williams, A Football Life. Mm. And I, I couldn't believe it, you know, because I had not been back to Howard's campus in years. Even when I came back and worked for the Washington Post from 99 to 04, I would take my kids to campus and homecoming. So when I went back three years ago, I'm like, whoa, what is this? You know, they've like most universities, you know, they bought up properties on the block. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, then the gentrification of Georgia mm-hmm. Avenue, Florida Avenue and, and everything around there, I was like, that used to be a bookstore. That used to be a restaurant. I could go there and get fried shrimp with mumbo sauce over here. Mm-hmm. Gone. Gone. Apartments. So that was really shocking. But I have not been on campus in years. And it's, and it's just unfortunate um, in large part just because my schedule and me living in Los Angeles. I just, you know, and, and as many things as I do for the campus, you know, I, I'd love to come back and speak to students and things like that, but I've, I've just never been asked to. So, and I don't want to invite myself. <laughs> no, I understand, but I, I might have to send some surreptitious uh, notes to Nicole Hannah Jones to now that she's going to be there to get to get you on campus, that, like some sort of journalistic reunion of the Howard. Faithful. I would love it. There's- there's a lot of us. Yeah, I've never, never been, never been asked, never been asked about. Uh, Howard, please listen to what we're saying here. This is, <laughs> this is gold, Howard. Come on. <laughs> well, and just, and then just the last thing, Steve, just because we ask this of everybody who comes on the show, uh, what's on your playlist these days? What are you listening to? What gets you through uh, a, a tough deadline? If you need music in the background. What's music in your life these days? Oh, man, I am really big into the Afro beats, you know, Burner Boy, Wizkid, 
Um, you know, uh, the new Leon Bridges, I'm, I'm like mm. one of his biggest fans. Um, I, I have a very eclectic playlist, but, you know, I'm just really into kind of the Afro beats. You know, my wife is Jamaican, so I'm always listening mm. to classic and, and kind of updated reggae music. Um, so, and Mac Ayers, Mac Ayers is my guy. I, he's, he's this young guy out of New York, um, really kind of neo soulish. Um, I can't pump that dude up enough because he should be one of the most recognizable names. So, so those are my guys. Uh, Steve, you know, thank you so much. I know it's early where you are. I really appreciate you making the time for the podcast. No, I appreciate you having me, Dave. Okay. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now I've got some choice words that I co-wrote with Mr. Jules Boykoff. Okay, look, the Tokyo Paralympics launched on August 24th under a merciless cloud of COVID-19. Many regions in Japan are experiencing record COVID infections driven by the Delta variant. The healthcare system is being stretched to its limits. As with the Tokyo 2020 Olympics that preceded them, the Paralympics will transpire under a state of emergency which the Japanese government recently extended through September 12th in numerous prefectures. That's like their version of states. Despite much vaunted strictures in the so-called Olympic bubble, more than 500 people associated with the Paralympic Games have contracted the virus. To ram ahead with the Paralympics is to take a massive gamble with public health in Japan and the wider world. It also means risking the health of Paralympians, some of whom are immunocompromised and more susceptible to the ravages of COVID-19. To this date, the number is 144 people, and that number is, I think, a little bit old by the time you hear this, of people who are directly linked to the Paralympics, having already tested positive for COVID-19. Masami Aoki, director of the Japan Women's Medical Association, told the nation, The hospitals surrounding Tokyo are almost full. After the Olympics started, the number of COVID infections exploded across Japan, and 70% of doctors in Japan view the games as the cause. Dr. Aoki noted that the number of positive coronavirus cases associated with the Paralympics is already rising. I am worried that if the Paralympics are held, the lives of athletes may not be guaranteed, she says. We may not be able to provide adequate medical care. She punctuated her remarks by saying, I think we must stop the Paralympics. The Paralympic athlete community is not a homogenous group. After all, the Paralympic Games feature athletes from 10 impairment classifications, from leg length difference to vision impairment. 
with such a wide range of health conditions in play, it makes sense that as an editorial published in the New England Journal of Medicine noted, some Paralympic athletes would be in a higher risk category for COVID. Athletes with respiratory disorders are especially at risk. The International Paralympic Committee itself pointed out that some athletes could be more vulnerable to coronavirus complications. More specifically, Paralympians with cervical spinal cord lesions may have a greater risk of developing respiratory complications due to weakness and mobility restriction of the chest wall. Furthermore, spinal cord injury is also independently associated with other conditions such as diabetes type 2 and cardiovascular disease, which are known risk factors for increased morbidity due to COVID. The roots of the Paralympics stretch back to the 1940s when Ludwig Gutmann started using sports as part of the rehabilitation process for people who had suffered spinal cord injuries. His goal was twofold, the social reintegration of people with disabilities and the wider cultural project of changing societal perceptions about disability. After staging numerous Stoke Mandeville games between 1948 and 1959, featuring sports like archery and swimming, the first Paralympics conducted in parallel with the Olympics took place in 1960 in Rome. And beginning in 1988, each summer Paralympic Games has commenced around two weeks after the Olympics, with the Tokyo Paralympics following this pattern. When we asked disability advocate Liz Jackson to identify the positive aspects of pressing ahead with the Paralympics, she replied, I don't think there are any pros to staging the Paralympics at this time. Back in July, Liz Jackson, a founding member of Disabled List, a design collective that uses creative practice and social friction to expand modes of access for the disabled, predicted on Twitter that the Paralympics would be canceled because the International Olympic Committee would slam ahead and in doing so contribute to the rise of COVID in ways that would make the Paralympics untenable. She told the nation that with Olympic organizers, quote, it felt like there was no long game. They were trying to keep COVID at bay for two weeks, and there was no concern about what would happen after the fact. Jackson saw right through the gauzy propaganda emerging from Olympic boosters that there was no relationship between the Tokyo Olympics and Japan's COVID spiral. They had to know they were creating a spike that would coincide with the Paralympics. Olympic organizers, she said, were willing, quote, to sacrifice the Paralympics for the Olympics. To me, their disregard for the health of Japanese citizens reflects their perceptions of Paralympic athletes, their sacrificial lambs. Leroy Moore, who's been a guest on this podcast, and he works with the influential disability athletic advocacy group, uh, Crip Hop Nation, concurred, writing to me simply, postpone. Then there is the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, which is insisting over the objections of Tokyo's Board of Education that children, children be sent to Paralympic events for educational purposes. Sending children, many of whom we can assume to be under 12, to public events amid a pandemic only shows the break with reality that far too many in power in Tokyo are experiencing. Decisions such as these, as well as decrees to go full steam ahead with the Paralympics, are not merely the result of drinking the mega-event Kool-Aid. It's because some people's political survival at this point depends upon selling the idea that everything is going to be just fine. They are ignoring Japanese citizens' impassioned and reasonable cries that the emperor is buck-naked. 
We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now, this is the part of the show that we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award are going to the same person, one of the most interesting people in sports right now. I'm always interested in folks who are willing to be liked, willing to be disliked, willing to not care what folks think. Sometimes it goes a little too far. I'm talking about the sprinter Shikari Richardson. Uh, people might be familiar with Shakari Richardson's story. Of course, she was looked at as one of the favorites in the women's 100-meter dash at the Tokyo Olympics and then was booted off the team because she smoked marijuana one time after learning of the death of a parent, uh, a, a bit of knowledge that was imposed upon her by a reporter in a public news conference. Pretty awful stuff. And Shikari came back with a big race that just took place recently at something called the Prefontaine Classic post the Olympics. And she came in now. Now, what I love about Richardson is that after the race, uh, she was still out there talking smack, saying, you haven't heard the last of me, you know, and, and, I, and I love that. I love the confidence. And also anybody who knows track knows that for a lot of the stars, if you feel like you're going to lose then you're going to come in nice because after about 70 meters in, you're just saying, heck with this, I'm, I'm done. So I haven't given up in Shakari Richardson, even though the women from Jamaica are just uh, unbelievable right now and going next level. So, you know, all props to them. But still, Shakari Richardson, that to me, I called her Flojo 2.0. I thought she was going to be the big star of the, of the Tokyo Games and um, still have a lot of respect for her. So just stand up, Shikari Richardson. Keep swagging your swag all the way to Swagtown. Stand up! Just sit your ass down, award. Sit your ass down! However, has to also go to Shikari Richardson. Because a U.S. sprinter tried to offer solidarity to Shikari Richardson. And Richardson's response was to write something snarky on Instagram. Now, that might not sound like such a big deal. But the person who was trying to offer support was someone by the name of Allison Felix, as in track star Allison Felix, as in the Allison Felix who just broke Carl Lewis's seemingly unbreakable record for track and field medals over the course of one Olympic career. That's Allison Felix. And also, oh, by the way, Allison Felix is probably the most uh, respected person at all levels in Olympic sports. She's somebody who was tossed over by her sponsor. She started her own company in order to get funds to go to the Olympics. She was dumped because of having a child and she's you know, been this incredible example to people um, who after they have children, getting back into the mix. I mean, I mean, Allison Felix is great on so many levels. So for Shakari Richardson to lift one of her exquisitely sculpted fingernails on the middle finger 
towards a Lallis and Felix. Not a good move. So Shakari Richardson for swagging your swag, just stand up. Good for you. Hate all the haters. Let the haters be your motivators. All that stuff. But for then turning your ire towards Allison Felix, uh-uh. For that, you got to sit down. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Steve Weish. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there listening, mask up, vax up. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>